Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Kevin is a research affiliate at the Population Studies Center at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. He is a leading expert in measuring household-level environmental impacts and author of the most recent household impact study for the citizens' climate lobby concerning the financial and political effects of a very hot topic, a redistributive carbon tax. Kevin collaborates with academics and with NGOs and occasionally with for-profit types like myself on questions at the intersection of environmental economics and data science, including neighborhood-level mapping of carbon footprints, social inequality, and modeling of policy impacts. He worked previously at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria and the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. He now lives in Colorado with his wife and son. He and his wife, Sarah, author the blog Just Frugality, which I would really urge everyone watching this to visit. It's begun to have an effect on me, and there they discuss the value of intentional consumption and how they have constructed a semi-retired lifestyle in their mid-30s. I'm especially excited because we've had a series of these interviews over the last 12 months, and I think with this conversation with Kevin, we're really beginning to pivot more firmly towards concepts of behavior change. So I kick it off, Kevin. Your question number one is one of my goals in these short interviews is to humanize science. And so can you walk us through your life and career? What led you to make the career choices that you have? Sure. Well, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I went to Foothill Community College and transferred to Stanford, where I studied public policy, really focused on development economics and global poverty there. Why are some societies rich and some poor? After I graduated and moved to D.C. to work for the Center for Global Development, one of those quirks of fate, uh, the center had recently hired a former World Bank economist named David Wheeler, who became a mentor to me and really a champion of mine. And so I worked with him for about three years on modeling renewable energy deployment in developing countries and renewable energy policy. And at that point, I thought I wanted to be an academic uh, I actually applied to do a PhD at Stanford, and I was uh, summarily and completely justifiably rejected. And uh, around the same time, my my girlfriend broke up with me, and I decided, well, I need to make a change here. <laughs> so I uh, quit my job and sold all my possessions and, and got a 30-liter backpack and headed, uh, headed off to Asia. And I uh, came back about seven months later with uh, a couple of tattoos and tuberculosis and, uh, oh, wow. and a desire, <laughs> inactive tuberculosis. And uh, really just uh, at that point, I, I was, had a conviction that I wanted to live a different and simpler life. I, I knew I didn't need much and I had realized I really valued freedom more than anything else. I knew that environmental sustainability was going to be part of that life path. I didn't quite know how. Mm-hmm. I was offered a scholarship to go over to Europe to do a master's in environmental science. And at about the same time, that, that girlfriend that I mentioned decided she made a horrible mistake. And, <laughs> and she's now my wife, Sarah. So Hurrah, came, happy endings. Yes. So I uh, came back to the U.S. We got married. We moved to Colorado in 2012. And uh, then I had an opportunity to go to the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria for two years. Worked on a very interesting project there to quantify the energy and material inputs needed to ensure decent living standards in the developing countries. And um, then we came back to the U.S. We had our son. 
And uh, for the last few years, I've been collaborating with NGOs in the University of Pennsylvania, mostly on household carbon footprinting in the U.S. with the goal of informing environmental policy design. And on the personal front, as you mentioned, we've, my wife and I have spent that decade that we've been married really intentionally developing a lifestyle and, and a philosophy of life that uh, we think delivers a really high-level well-being for our family and comparatively low level of consumption. We've tried to make that journey public as much as we can. And I guess just you know, overall, I'm, I'm fascinated by the challenge of how to construct a fulfilling life that doesn't break the bank, either financially or ecologically. And I'm interested in the material aspects of that, but also the psychological and philosophical side of the equation as well. You know, I rarely, in fact, I don't think I've ever asked this question as a follow-up to my standard first question, which is the one I just asked. And it is, you know, I think one of the stress levels that people have is okay, we can do this in the here and now, but could we actually pull this off for the next 35 years? And so as you think about the changes you've made and the shifts you've made, is there stress and anxiety about the future? You know, can this be sustained? You mean in terms of our personal choices? Yes. Well, in our case, no, because we've, you know, that we spend so little money uh, that... The savings trajectory for us probably looks much better, frankly, than a lot of people who make way, way more money. So That's yeah, we have no we have no That's stress amazing. about the future. <laughs> okay, well, you may find a whole bunch of my viewers and me just showing up to live with you, but we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that in due course. I want to move on to the next question. Start digging into some of your research, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you're an environmental economist, as you mentioned, but you're also a population scientist. So can you shed some light on, you know, the small area analysis work that you've done with Penn? How does household and neighborhood level analysis provide better, superior insights to macro scale observations, especially when we think about inequalities, you know, systemic or otherwise in how climate change affects human beings? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, a general comment about the data that social scientists have at their disposal. I mean, there's a ton of information out there on how households and individuals behave and think. And this is usually collected in surveys about how people get their income, how they spend it, how they use their time, how they use technology, their political preferences and policy views and all that. Mm -hmm. And then next to that, there's this ever-increasing trove of spatially referenced data, things about what does the building stock look like from place to place, commute distances, school quality, you know, election outcomes? It's, it's kind of endless. But these are all sitting in their separate silos, uh, generally not used in any kind of coherent way. So my general aim as primarily a data scientist and secondarily a social scientist is to develop statistical techniques to combine these disparate data sources that are out there and aren't being fully utilized. And in the context of climate change, this is this is really quite relevant because of rising importance of environmental justice. Mm -hmm. There's general concern that efforts to address one problem, climate change, will actually exacerbate other problems, particularly social inequalities. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration is really taking this seriously and directing mm -hmm. federal agencies to take it seriously. The problem is that there's comparatively little research on how environmental policies or really even general government policies impact different types of households in different places. Part of that is that the kind of high resolution data that you need to do that type of analysis just hasn't existed or doesn't exist in sufficient quantity. Mm -hmm. So to give you one example, right? I mean, most economists believe that carbon taxes are 
the most efficient way to reduce emissions. And the reason they're efficient is that they increase the price of carbon-intensive goods and services. Yep. For example, gasoline. Well, I mean, that's not a big deal for you or me. Yeah. But uh, for a household that's uh, near the poverty line, it's a big deal. But interestingly, and I think this is the, the, the type of detail that you, you need good high-resolution data to get at, you could take equally poor households, one that lives in New York City and uses public transportation, one that lives in the suburbs of Dallas and has an old fuel-inefficient car, right. a 45-minute commute, right. right? And we have a we have a big equity problem there. So if you don't have the data to understand those differentiations across space and socioeconomic groups, you can't tailor your data to address environmental justice concerns, or you might do it in a way that is terribly ineffective. In addition, outside of climate, I'm interested in developing these types of cohesive universal data sets because I think there's lots of applications to all sorts of interesting questions. For example, housing policy, housing subsidy policy, political redistricting, questions around what are called neighborhood effects. So for example, we know that rich households are increasingly self-sorting into uh, neighborhoods that are exclusively other high-income households. What is the effect of that kind of peer group effect on notions of enough or sufficiency and does it change their consumption patterns? Hmm. So there's all sorts of interesting applications, but my focus primarily as a data scientist is developing the kind of high resolution data that you need to even begin to get at those questions. Got it. So I'm going to continue digging and poking, and it relates to carbon again. And this is all, all these questions are based on some of your work. You know, so much research has examined global or national carbon emissions. And as you were just saying, these are not silver bullet and should not be silver bullet things. You know, the effects of climate change are not distributed equally, as we just discussed. And so your research at the intersection of all of these trends and factors is especially relevant. So can we unpack a little bit further whether carbon payments, I mean, we, we just touched on whether carbon payments counterbalance these inequalities. Can we dig into that a little further? Yeah. I mean, could we make the case that it's misguided? Is that the direction, maybe, which would be counter to a lot of economic thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, so my feeling on carbon taxes specifically, um, and let, let's take the case of what's called carbon tax and dividend policy, because uh-huh. uh, this, this is the type of policy that I've analyzed in, in a, quite a bit of detail for the citizens' climate lobby. So there's actually a proposal in Congress right now, unclear whether it will go anywhere, but it's a proposal to have a national carbon tax uh-huh. and return 100% of the revenue back to households in a roughly per capita, as a roughly per capita dividend. So every month households would get a check from the government, which is their share of the carbon tax proceeds. So to give you an idea, I mean, the carbon tax increases prices. I mean, it, I think it's useful for you know, the general audience to understand what we're talking about. So like, please, you know, carbon, please. Carbon, Absolutely. Yeah, carbon, so a carbon tax of like $30 per ton, we're okay. talking about increasing gasoline prices by about 30 cents, gallon of milk increases by maybe like 4 cents, okay. and a, a new car might increase by like $200. That gives you okay. an idea of the scale. So as we, as we talked about earlier, we have these equity concerns. So what Citizens Climate Lobby asked me to do was develop a data set of household footprints across America. We ended up getting, assembling a data set with 1.3 million households mm-hmm. and then simulating how this policy actually plays out financially for each of those households. So what's the additional cost of the policy due to rising prices? And then 
how is the dividend offsetting that additional cost? Okay. I mean, the general result is that a per capita dividend tends to be very progressive. Mm-hmm. So about 60% of all households come out basically ahead in the sense that the dividend more or less entirely covers the additional cost. Okay. For, for households in poverty, it goes up to about 90%. So you're addressing most of the concerns about general concerns about the poor getting squeezed by environmental right. policy. Right. But there's really important geographic variation that uh, national level models or, or previous studies have missed, I think. So, mm-hmm. for example, richer coastal blue states tend to do better than poor red states in the middle of the country. That's largely driven by differences in climate, population density, carbon intensity, electricity supply. There's also concerns. Yeah, I think a per capita dividend addresses most of the concerns at the very bottom of the income distribution, but there are really, I think there are additional concerns towards the middle of the distribution. Okay. If, so if you take um, households with more or less kind of middle-class median incomes and you look at uh, households in California, mm-hmm. they do great under that policy. Households in Minnesota do significantly worse. Households in North Dakota, even worse still. And they have basically the same income. Right. So it's not clear if that's fair. It's not clear if that's politically tenable. And even if you looked within states, you would find differences. Again, controlling for income, you would find differences between, say, San Francisco and Fresno. Again, for these spatial factors. You also get interesting effects like Latino households and Black households. Tend to be on in terms of socioeconomic status roughly similar, mm-hmm. but because Latino households are larger, which is more efficient from a carbon standpoint, Latino households do quite a bit better than Black households under right. a per capita dividend. So there's all these complications to the question of is the policy fair, right? In some sense, I'm a data head, so I could imagine ways of designing a rebate mechanism where you give money back to households in ways that is a little bit more targeted and addresses some of these concerns with finer detail. And you might even do it in a way that brings Republicans along just in terms of real politic. Right. But uh, that would require moving away from the simplicity of a per capita dividend. And it's, it appears from my, my interactions with policymakers and staff on the Hill is that simplicity is something that they really value in policy proposals. They do, they do, but I mean, there's tremendous value to simplicity, but simplicity is one reason why we repeatedly find ourselves in a ditch. You know, this is a rabbit hole. It's a follow-up question, and I, I almost don't want to ask it, but I'm going to ask it, which is, you know, part of the issue around why there's simplicity is the desire to create a single nationally mandated policy. Is there any virtue to pushing this down to states making their own decisions, or is that just dumb? That's an interesting idea. I mean, I could see allowing states to decide how they want to allocate their revenue or allocate their share of the rebate. So like California, you know, maybe California wants to have a very highly targeted rebate program and maybe another state just wants to do per capita, right? It's very hard to do state-based carbon taxes just because of leakage. I mean, companies move, goods are flying all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the simplicity. I mean, what was was it Einstein? He said, you know, the solution to any problem should be as simple as possible and no more so. I mean, I think that's kind of where we should be thinking. And may- maybe per capita is too simple. Well, yeah. You know, simplicity is great when you're 
dealing with a special theory of relativity, I'm I'm all for simplicity, <laughs> but this is a little different. I'm I'm going to push us on, even though we could spend a lot of time on this super interesting topic. But we have more interesting topics, or equally interesting topics. So your household impact survey notes that households in the richest 20% account for about 2.6 times as much carbon pollution as one of the poorest 20%. And I'm sure that multiple is even more staggering if we were to look at the top 1% or 5%. Mm-hmm. And largely because they travel more, they spend a lot more on goods and services. You, know, you mentioned as we started, um, and here is the chance to dig into it a little better, your wife's and you um, have laid out on just frugality how you know, you've laid out a roadmap. You know, this is what you're doing and how you're doing it. So what do you think is the relationship between frugality and household level sustainability? And that is a very open-ended question by design okay. because, because you can kind of take it anywhere you want. So when I think of the relationship between frugality and sustainability, I immediately think of happiness or well-being as being wow. the key mediating concept there. So let me just describe just frugal, what frugality means to us. So for us, frugality means something like the efficient use of resources to maximize well-being. That's really all it means. Principally, that means maximizing our use of money, but especially time, which is really the only scarce resource really is time. Right. And so if you take that seriously, I think it leads you in a certain direction in terms of consumption choices. But There is a literature, there is research out there on the relationship between consumption or at least income and emotional well-being notions of happiness. Mm -hmm. It tends to find that, yeah, I mean, as you might expect, it appears that self-reported happiness tends to saturate at a certain income level. The research so far is there's lots of problems with it, but, you know, it's suggesting that saturation levels in the United States and other rich countries are quite high. We're talking like individual income of around maybe $80,000. That's like around the 80th or maybe 75th percentile of the U.S. income distribution. Okay. And it clearly suggests that there are, there's a fair amount of consumption going on in rich countries that is, in some sense, low quality, right. by which I mean that it's just not generating a lot of returns in terms of well-being. So, you know, I think one way to think about frugality is that we let, we, it's not that we want to become miser. It's not that we are anti-consumption. No. It's that we just want to eliminate the low-quality consumption, and we really want to focus on high-quality stuff. And because even the low-quality consumption up at high-income levels is coming with an environmental cost, coming with an impact. So I think that reshaping social norms around low-quality consumption at the top of the income distribution strikes me as extremely important for two reasons. One is just a practical impact reason, which is that there's as you pointed out, the emissions at the top of the distribution are quite large. There's a lot of fat there, right? That's not delivering much in, in terms of well-being, probably. And the other reason is that the, what the top of the, say, 20%, what the top 20% of the income distribution ha- does in terms of their consumption norms is, is all about defining aspirations for the rest of our society, but also for the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that households in the upper middle class in particular, in rich countries that are able to find a way of living with comparatively less, not in an absolute sense, is it little? You know, I think there's a responsibility there to try and share that and to try and make the case, particularly to peers, about the ability to live a very good life on less. And we've tried to do that with, um, with our website. I mean, to give people a little more context, we're in our mid-30s. We have a child, a dog, a mortgage. At this point, we each work 20 hours a week. 
total household income is about $70,000. So we're only taking on work that we really want to do. And we don't particularly care how much we get paid. We give away in charity or, or save about 40000 of that. And the rest finances a, a lifestyle that we consider to be very, very high quality. That's and outside of, yeah, that's outside, of our, outside of our housing costs, we're spending about $22,000 a year. And I think the hardest thing for people to understand when I say that is that we're not weirdos. I mean, if you came and spent a day with us, we would have a lovely time, right? It's, it is very it is very clear that you're not a weirdo. And so yeah. now <laughs> I need to ask you a follow-up question, then we'll go to sure. question five. The follow-up question, Kevin, is, I mean, have you begun having an impact on your friends? Forget people like me who come to the website, right? But just in your peer group of folks who know you, are you seeing behavior change? I think at the margins. Yeah, I think part of the problem that I've run into is that we've, again, in a global context, I don't think what we're doing is extreme at all. Mm -hmm. Right, It's only extreme relative to our peer group. Right. But to the peer group, it looks pretty extreme, particularly the dollar amounts. Right. You know, when you see something that's kind of extreme, there's a certain sense of like just discounted entirely. So what I have found is most effective is talking to people about specific actions, right? So specific choices, like choices about vehicles or choices about food. So that is that, that, is, that is my next question. Okay, great. Because <laughs> we, we're going to get to that. And so you can, you can continue your response in the context of the next question. And the next question, it's our last question, but it's a really important one. So as consumers, we're bombarded with green or green-washed most of the time alternatives to products we use in everyday life. And as a, as a single individual, I have been giving a lot of thought to this topic and beginning a newsletter on replacing products. But you've pointed out very eloquently that people are very focused on individual product selection rather than one's overall environmental footprint. And this is something, in, in part because of your writing, I have begun thinking about a lot as well. So in your eyes, what is the most effective way that households can reduce environmental footprint and avoid the drug of greenwashed consumption-inducing products? Okay, I get asked a version of this question a lot. (laughs) So you'd think I would have a real practice to answer. (laughs) So I think there's two ways of answering this. I think of one is kind of the shallow answer and one I consider the deep answer. So the the shallow answer is that there's probably some basic lifestyle parameters that if one keeps them in view and tries to orient their consumption around them, have the biggest impact. So the five that I think of that, that I list for people are the size of your home, like literally the physical size of your home, the nature of your commute to or from work. If that's really high footprint, that's going to add up. Mm-hmm. Avoid meat. This isn't like a prohibition, like reduce consumption, especially beef. Avoid airplanes, simpler thing, not a prohibition, but we want to be, we want to use them consciously. Uh And then the fifth one I would say is, is just don't buy things you don't need. And for things you do need, think about buying used versions of them first and foremost. And Mm -hmm. so you'll notice that what's not on the list, as you kind of mentioned, is swapping out a non-green product for a green product. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is, is I just don't have faith, at least today, that customers or consumers can really differentiate or have the ability to really differentiate between a genuinely green product and a fake one. Right. And I hope that that changes. But 
for now, my feeling is that a dollar spent on a green product might reduce your footprint, but mm-hmm. a dollar you don't spend, we know, reduces your footprint. So this series is not about, despite the fact that for the first time I've got a virtual background with my firm's name on it, this series has never <laughs> been about really Amasia, but as you may or may not have seen in my own writing, I keep coming. In my world of venture capital, technology, clean tech, climate tech, sustainability tech, this, that, and the other, there's just a widespread view that we can engineer or tech our way out of the crisis. And you know, for me, this in our investment thesis is built around the idea that we cannot and we need to engage in behavior change. And a lot of that is just reducing consumption. You know, your notion of rather than swapping a dollar for another dollar, you know, one product for another, you're better off not spending that dollar at all. All right. Well, listen, each one of our topics, I feel like we could spend two hours on, but this is to give people a sense for your research, your wisdom, your choices. I want to thank you for taking the time. And I have a very strong feeling I'm going to be asking you to do this again, to double, <laughs> cl- to double click on one or two of these things. So Kevin, thank Happy you. Too. Yeah, thank you, Ramanan. That was great fun and great questions. And um, yeah, let me know if I can help in any other way. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.